Hello, this is Peter Jonathan Robertson with the eighth of my interviews from the PJ Archive. It's with the American singer Gloria Gaynor, known as the Queen of Disco, whose international hits included Never Can Say Goodbye, I Am What I Am, and of course, I Will Survive. The interview took place in London in 2003. And what an interesting and entertaining character she turned out to be. Because you're originally from New Jersey and you right, still live there. and I still live there, yeah. you always lived there all your life? Well, I only lived four years in New York. But other than that, I've always lived in New Jersey. What were those four years during the 70s, during your sort of really busy... I'm in the 70s, yeah, yeah. in the mid-70s. Mm. Yeah. I also know New Jersey for Bruce Springsteen, of course. Mm-hmm. Have you ever met him? No, I haven't. Right. I haven't met the boss yet. There's been quite a few artists. Who else has come from New Jersey then? Uh, Frank Sinatra, Stevie Wonder, yeah. Whitney Houston, Lauren Hill, Queen Latifah. What do you think it is about New Jersey that has inspired so many great artists? I don't know. I, I don't think it's inspiration from New Jersey, but I think our family are all originally from the South, mm. and I think they're drawn to New Jersey by the water. Your dad was from show business, isn't he? Yeah. His name was Daniel Fowles, and because he was never a star, his name was never an issue. But he did play um, the ukulele and the guitar and had a wonderful bass voice and spoke really, really deep, like rich voice like Barry White. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was, he was mm-hmm. very much in show business. Because I read that your dad left before you were even born. I first met my father when I was about four years old. Then I saw him again when I was five years old, and I have a, a memory of him buying me a red and white dress, red velvet at the top and white chiffon at the bottom. He took me shopping and bought me this beautiful red and white dress. I didn't see him again until I started singing. When I was like 18 years old, and he came to see my show and was seemingly very proud of me as a singer. And uh, then we kind of went our separate ways again. But then after my mother passed away, I just really felt this need to really get to know and form a relationship with my dad. Mm-hmm. And so I, I went to his home and told him that. And he was very, very happy. Do you think the fact that you went into show business was coincidental to what he did? No, I think it was quite coincidental. If one does inherit talent, I think I inherited talent, both from him and my mother, because their friends used to fight over who I inherited my talent from, because although my mother was never in show business, she had a great voice, Mm -hmm. really beautiful voice. And she used to sing around the house all the time, and I loved her voice, and didn't didn't think that that she'd ever paid any attention to me singing, that she knew that I I could sing. When did she get to see you become a huge success? No, she didn't. I didn't um, have my first hit record until 1975 and she passed mm-hmm. away in 1970. The only thing I ever thought about was buying my mother a house because I thought her such a wonderful parent mm-hmm. that I really wanted to reward her with a home, which I never got to do. My father passed in 78. Yeah, that's right. So he, he so. saw me yeah. as a so semi-star. It's amazing how Help many us. people in show business are from large families. Mm. And they say that, and it's often the youngest as well, like Celine Dion is the youngest of 14 children. Wow. And you, people often say, well, it's because they needed the attention, because by then it'd run out of attention. Yeah, right, probably like, so. Do you feel there's anything to be said for probably that? Probably so, probably so. Because, yeah, because not only was I the seventh child, but I was a girl mm. with five brothers. Mm. For I was the only girl for seven years. And although they all sang and had a quartet, I was never allowed to be a part of it because I was a girl. And I, I got the attention from them because I was the only girl, but I didn't get the, the, the attention that I think that I, that I wanted in the, in the younger years 
from my mother because um, there were so many of us. Because mm. a lot of people probably assume you were brought up on gospel music and that you came through no. the church as a singer. It's no, not, the case not at you. all, not at all. We, we only went to church with my grandmother when there was a special program going on that we thought mm. we'd enjoy. Did anybody ever say to you when you were very small, there's something about you, you're going to be special one day or whatever? Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was told me a few times. One thing that immediately comes to mind is a woman telling me, which really started me wanting to become a singer. I was uh, singing under the stairs one day, and a lady was coming down, neighbor was coming down the stairs, and she said, was that you singing? And I said, yeah. She said, I thought it was the radio. What were you singing? Oh, God. Why do fools fall in love? Oh, lovely song. Yes. Yeah. So was this the sort of thing you listened to on the radio? Were you, was that what started off your interest? You? At that time, I, I rarely listened to that kind of music. Mm. At that time, I was listening to jazz music, which was very unusual for mm. a, a kid of 13. Everybody else was listening to rock and roll, and I was mm. listening to Cannonball Adderley and Youssef Latif and Ahmad Jamal and Cleo Lane and Nancy Wilson, people like that. So you said that the, the lady upstairs sort of heard your voice from you under the stairs and sort of encouraged you. Where did it go from there from the point of view of your singing career? Well, from, from there I went into um, the, the glee club and joined the um, mixed chorus in high school. Had my first very frightening performance there. And from there, I um, kids in the class knew that I could sing and that I wanted to sing and uh, recommended me to a couple of um, band leaders mm -hmm. right out of high school and they would call me and I got a couple of engagements like that and uh, from that I you know, just went around, my brother would take me around and, and pretend that I was somebody from out of town who had a great voice and he could be, the, he was the only one who could coax me to sing a number of two and that was possible in my audition. Mm. For, to, to get a job with the band and, and it worked and I got some some, sh some shows with that and then uh, from that I got an engagement with a band that led me to a show in, um, in New York and at that show the club owner came over and told me that he had a band that worked there every night he'd bring in sort of stars on the weekend but he had a band that worked there every night and he would love to have me work there with him every night if I didn't mind. And I and my sister happened to be working there as a hat check girl, mm -hmm. at moonlighting sort of, um, supplemental job for her. And she said to me, if you're going to remain stationary anywhere, this is the place because mm -hmm. it's in the center of New York and, and um, producers are in and out of here all the time. So I stayed there and worked with that band and sure enough, a producer came in and took me to Columbia Records where I met Clive Davis mm. and Clive Davis auditioned me and eventually signed me and was where I had my first recording, Columbia Records. Do you think you always knew you'd be a successful singer or did you think just sort of like your average club singer? Well, I, I suppose I did because I had this favorite thing I used to do with my first um, bachelorette apartment. As a bachelorette and, and making $40 a week <laughs> and my rent was $32 a week, but I, I, I didn't have any furniture. I, did, I only had a bedroom. I had a bed and a dresser, mm. and for a few years, the living room was empty, and I'd stand in the middle of the living room, and as you might you probably know, if you stand in an empty room, you get this wonderful sort of ambiance and, and um, reverb sort of sound, mm. and I used to stand in the middle of it and close my eyes and imagine that I was in an auditorium of 50,000 adoring fans. Mm. Yeah. Little did you know yeah. that that would happen. Yeah. 
But was there a moment when you first realised you were famous, you were successful? Yes, very early on. My band and I used to work all around New Jersey. And with my very first recording, Honeybee, we, we were really, really good together. And there was a club called Fudgies up in Scarsdale, New York. And Fudgy would have in a new band every week. And on the Tuesday night when the band started, if the audience didn't like them, Fudgy would oust them and get somebody in new. And in order to do it that quickly and know that they were good, he very often used us. So the audience got very, very familiar with me and the band, and we became like we belonged to them, almost like a, a hometown band, although we weren't from that town at all. The first day that I re performed there after Honey Bee hit the charts, I had worked there a month before, and it was free to get in. And Fudgy, that that night, this this next time that he had us in, he had we put we had put together a sort of cabaret act. And Fudgy brought us in. He paid us for the night what he generally paid us for the week, and he charged thirty five dollars on the door. And I thought, no one is going to come and see us. Mm. No one is going to come in and pay $35 to see an act do one show mm. that they've been seeing do six shows mm. for free. But they did. The, the capacity was 138 people, 178 mm. people. There were 700 people in the club that night. And I got asked for my first autograph. Oh, and me and the person who asked for the photo, uh, he was shaking, holding the paper, and I was shaking, holding oh. the pen. I will never forget that. And I, I just... I said, yeah, you know, I have become a star. For these people to want to pay to hear me sing when they just heard me singing for free. This is wonderful. This is great. And then to, when the guy asked me for my autograph, I mean, they just sealed it. You started off doing quite a few covers, cover versions of songs, Never Can Say Goodbye. Yeah. Was it Four yeah. Tops, wasn't it? Right. Yeah. Well, no, that was oh. the Jackson 5. Oh, was it? Yeah. The, the, the Four Tops one was um, Reach Out. Was that kind of frustrating? Was you kind of pushed into that? No, I chose versions? to do that. Did you? I chose to do that because, first of all, I, I just felt they were great songs. Mm. And our idea between my, my producer and I, the idea was to do a cover version of an older song. And, but I found that if I did songs that were done by women, if I really liked them, I tended to copy them. Mm. And I didn't really want to do that. But I couldn't copy them in. Mm. I had to develop my own style if I did things done by men. So that's why I chose Never Can Say Goodbye, Reach Out, I'll Be There, I'm Going Out of My Head, mm. As Time Goes By. All of these things have been done by me. Your most famous songs you haven't written, but a lot of people probably assume that you, you did, that you, you have written. I know, I know. I wish I'd written I Will Survive. <laughs> oh, God, I wish I'd written I Will Survive. But I, I do feel that I Will Survive is... I really feel that that was an, a divine appointment. Mm. I feel like God said, this one's for you. This one's for you, and this one's going to carry you through to where I, I eventually want you to go. When you say you wish you'd written it for the financial reasons? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely for the financial reasons. It's enough for, yeah. you know, for the sort of altruistic reasons that I've recorded it. Mm. But, but for, yeah. I know it was originally a B-side, and that's what a lot of people have reported that and everything mm -hmm. else. Did you nearly miss out on it altogether? Did you nearly not record it? No, right. no, because it was chosen mm. for me from by the producers from their catalog after having spoken to me about the kind of lyrics that I like to sing and mm. the kind of emotions and and uh, sort of subject matter mm. that I that I enjoy.
because uh, did you not think when you recorded actually this I prefer this this side I prefer the B side and well we we thought that when we first read the lyrics my mm. husband and I mm. when we first read the lyrics we thought are they serious about putting this on the B side this is a hit mm. this is a song with a timeless lyric that mm. everyone is going to be able to relate to mm. how can they even think of putting this on the B side did you feel straight away it was for you I know, oh, yeah. I know that the lyrics at that time didn't refer to your life although they've turned out to be quite prophetic no they did at that time did they? they did in two ways first of all when I recorded it I was thinking of oh, your mother my and mother your back, yeah. and my back when I was in, this, in the hospital with spine surgery there were people going allegedly and reportedly going around the record company saying the queen is dead right. because well that I was, had been elected queen of the disco but I was never going to sing again because mm. of my back injury yeah. so you know Mm. I was already thinking I would survive. It's the number one karaoke song of all time, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I've heard like, that. Have you ever thought of going into a karaoke bar and just singing it and they don't I did that once. Like, did you? Tell I us did about that. that. Well, I was known by the owner of the place and I was known by my friend who was singing there. And in his, New Jersey, is it? No, this was here. Oh, in This England, was here right? in, uh, yeah. somewhere in London, mm-hmm. yeah. And he was performing and he brought his daughter up to sing, which he, he did on occasion while performing there. And but nobody else knew who I was there, and I went up and snatched the microphone from her and told her that she was too cute, and she was too young, and sang too well to be singing my song. <laughs> and I finished the song. Oh, <laughs> it was great. Did it bring the house down? Yeah. Oh yeah. I am what I am. Well, tell us how that came about. See, a lot well, of that that one was chosen because I thought it was a good follow up to "I Will Survive," mm. because as I recorded it, I was thinking of people who are looked upon as not measuring up for reasons of being handicapped or being different in one way or another and thought that they should either be pushed aside or they should change mm. to fit into someone else's idea of what they ought to be. That, that, that was the, the reasons why I was singing that song and the, and the kind of people that I was singing the song for. Not to put too much lightheartedness on it, but it isn't I am what I am. Wasn't that Popeye's expression? I am what I am. Didn't you yeah, say that all the time? right, right. Did that occur to you at the time? Yeah. No, it didn't. It never did. <laughs> that. It never did. I tell you what did occur to me. Go on. Is that that's what God calls himself. Oh, okay. I am. I am what I am. Was religion very much part of your life by that stage? No. Right. No, it wasn't until after that. Right. When I was in the hospital with the surgery... I really started out pretending to be a wonderful person by reading the Bible while my roommate looked on. In doing that, I encouraged her to read the Bible. Uh, And I'm glad that 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 happened that way. But it was after starting to read the Bible that I began to desire to go back into show business with a purpose of giving something to people, giving them hope, giving them encouragement, singing solutions rather than than problems. And that started me, um, then when I Will Survive became popular and I became very, very sort of affluent Mm. and feeling still unfulfilled. I began this quest for what makes a person feel fulfilled when they seemingly already have everything. Wherever you've gone over the years, in the last 30 years, 25 years or whatever, have people shouted at you, Oi, Gloria, sing I Will Survive or whatever? Do they shout at you on the street? or They don't shout it, but they do quietly ask. Could you do a number for us? When they, as soon as they learn who I am. In a restaurant or something. In a restaurant or in a, in a department store, yeah. in a cleaners, anywhere. It happens all the time. In my... Um, the shop where I have my nails done. I'm sitting there and somebody saw a picture of me in a magazine. Mm-hmm. 
And they come over and say, I thought that was you. Oh, yeah. And, 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 and the girls do And I was just going, oh, my God, it is. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Give us a song. They're like, no. <laughs> they just want me to sing. Mm. But you yeah. wouldn't do that in a spontaneous situation? I have on occasion. Like, like sitting in a, in a nail shop. It's normally happened in a nail shop. That I've done it because you, you in a nail shop become really friendly, you yes, know. Yes. People start to laugh, talking amongst them. Yeah, yeah. Mm. and an occasion I've mm. broken out into song, and it normally happens. I tell you when I do it, when the song comes on radio, okay. in the shop, mm. you know, and I'll sing along with it. Was it. What was the first time like another celebrity came up and you know expressed their appreciation of what you do? What immediately comes to mind is Whitney Houston. About I guess it's about three years ago now, we did a charity show out in L.A. And uh, there were lots of acts on the bill, lots of acts that you'd know. She came over to me and she said, um, she said, thank you for, for doing that song. She said, you gave us all so much hope. I will survive. And so, I will survive. So much hope and so encouragement, she said. You are the diva. And I said, thank you. That's, that's really sweet mm. of you. You mentioned the word diva. Mm. We immediately think, so we, you know, everyone always talk about celebrities and demanding this and demanding that. Were you ever like that? Yes, and I was, and I don't remember feeling like that, but I was told by um, and my agent, my British agent, that he used to, he and his wife used to hate to see me coming because I was very demanding and very selfish and self-centered, but in such a passive resistant kind of way, mm. sort of underhanded kind of, I'm a really nice person and you really ought to do this for me mm. kind of thing. And then he later told me that since I'd become a Christian, that I'd made a 180 degree turnaround and was a completely different person and and a person for whom uh, he and his wife would, there was nothing they wouldn't do. Um, do you think there was a particular moment though where you really were terrible the way you behaved? Yeah, as a matter of fact it was here in Britain. Uh, we, I was doing a show with some other celebrities and their manager uh, came in, came over to me said, uh, hey Gloria what's going on? And he slapped me on my knee and I said, excuse me do you know me? I don't think so. Perhaps if you're lucky one day you might get to know me. Because I look back and I think, it was a much nicer way you could have done that. Mm. It wasn't necessary to act like that. I don't know, I don't know what got into me. And, I, and, I, and now I look back after hearing what my agent told me and I think, how many times did I do things like that and don't remember? It's been reported a lot about you had difficulty with, with drugs and with drink and so on. How exaggerated has that been or was that as bad as... I think it's been quite, quite exaggerated. Right. Because, two reasons. Number one, I was raised in a very, very different way. I wasn't raised religious, but I was raised with a lot of common sense. And the other reason is because of the common sense, I never drank or did drugs or smoked when I had to perform. And I was always performing. So when I did do these things was only so that because I had such low self-esteem and was so insecure, I, was, I did them just enough to be considered one of the in-crowd. Mm. Just enough that I, they didn't see me as a spy or somebody looking down on them. And my reason for mentioning it in the press or in my book is so that young people will know that you can't point at me and say, well, she was a drug addict and, you know, she really overdid it. And, and so that's why she's talking against it. But I only do a little bit. I want them to know it's not all right to do a little bit. Mm. It's not okay. Because alcohol destroys your brain cells. Mm. And though you've got many of them, they don't regenerate. 
So it's really not okay. Um, they say that it's good to have a glass of wine, one glass of wine. Mm. I suppose that's okay. But it's not okay to get to drink to anything to the point where your speech is slurred. It's certainly not okay to drink enough, in my estimation, it's not okay to drink enough that you would be uh, 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 arrested for, for drunk driving, even though you think mm. your perception is okay, mm. but the policeman can tell that your perception is not mm. okay. I don't think it's okay to do, because if it's doing that to you for your driving, it must be doing something detrimental to your body. So I really don't think that's okay, and it certainly isn't okay to do any amount of drugs. People probably assume that the 70s for you, you must have been feeling on top of the world. And Was it your happiest time? How does it compare to other pages in your life? It wasn't my happiest time. It, it was a happy time for a moment. It was a happy time because I thought that I was becoming so successful that very soon now, I'm going to grab the brass ring and I'm going to be really, really happy because I'm mounting up these, you know, things. I'm, I'm, I'm getting clothes and I'm getting jewelry and I'm getting furs and I'm getting cars and I'm getting homes and my husband loves me and I'm going to be, you know, I, that's the brass ring and I'm going to be so very, very happy and I wasn't, mm. I wasn't fulfilled at all. And I found out that ful fulfillment comes when you are able to rightfully define who you are, when you are able to correctly assess your own talents, attributes, gifts, and abilities. And when you are able to use those things to help other people, those are the things that makes one happy because you find yourself useful. No one wants to be misused. People say they don't want to be used. Everybody wants to be used because everybody wants to feel useful. You don't want to be misused. Did you feel that you would always make hit records? Did you feel that your success would go on forever, that it wouldn't have a limited period of time? No, I never felt that. I never felt that I'd always go on making hit records because I know that there are too many elements involved in making hit records that you have no control over. You have no control over the sudden shift, the haste of the general public. Did you feel quite rejected when the hit records you know, slowed up? No, I didn't feel rejected. I felt let down in some cases by my record company because I felt that they hadn't chosen the songs that mm. I would have chosen. And if I had, if I, they had chosen the songs that I would have chosen, um, they, I would have had the hits. I, I, I a few times felt that way. Other times, I just felt that it's not my time. Mm. It's just not my time. I'm, I'm, I'm meant to be doing something else now. And now your time's kind of come round again, again, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Why do you think that is? I think that's because when I've learned that, when you are feeling sort of displaced and lost and not knowing which way to go and, and, and everything you try doesn't work, you're in what I call a wilderness. You're meant to assess yourself and learn what it is you were made and meant to do. Set about preparing yourself to do those things. Preparing yourself physically, emotionally, and academically to do what it is you were made and meant to do. 
so that you can be taken into the promised land, which is where you begin to use those things that bring about fulfillment. But you're part of a, a wave of nostalgia that's certainly hitting the UK. I don't know about the US. Mm -hmm. Do you feel nostalgic for the 70s? Do, you, do you like that music best all. or do you cringe like some Not people? at all. I don't cringe when I hear a lot of it because a lot of it is was really good mm. music and I just still enjoy it but I certainly don't miss the times I can go and play the records anytime I want I don't have to go back mm. to wearing belt I did my time in those clothes <laughs> I'm not going back to that and I certainly don't miss the ignorance that we it was almost an innocence but it was really quite ignorance and the excesses that we indulged in without any thought about mm. the consequences. What about the hairstyles? I don't miss the hairstyles at all. I don't miss the places mm. that we went to. I don't, I don't, don't really what miss What was your worst hairstyle? When was that? My worst hairstyle probably was the huge afro that I had and I see mm. myself in, in that uh, I Will Survive video. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, he's shaking and this thing is going, blowing in the wind. It's <laughs> unbelievable. Did it take a long time to grow that? Yeah. It did. So it was sort of Jackson it 5 time, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, I know. And you had to make it perfectly round. Do you think you're a soul singer? Is that how you label yourself? Or do you not like to be labeled? I don't really like to be labeled because people most often have a different understanding of the label than I do. Because what I call a soul singer, I think, can be any kind, any genre. Because to me, a soul singer is a person that has the ability to make the audience feel what they're feeling when they perform or what they'd like them to feel when they perform so that if you're singing a, a very sad blues song about how my boyfriend or my husband or my man left me then they're they're That's country music going, yeah right <laughs> they're going back to feeling that you know mm -hmm. thinking about that or if you're singing a very oh I've just met the most wonderful person in the world mm -hmm. then you either have them feeling that or remembering that or wishing that that happened to them mm -hmm. so that to me is, is soul Having mm. have just just the ability to bring out those emotions in people. So how do you like to be labelled, or don't you? I just like to be labelled as a really good singer. And what about the movies for you? Were you ever offered any movie roles? Not yet. Not yet. I wish someone. Had, well, actually, I was offered a movie role. I didn't get it. Patty the Bell got it. In what film? It was a film called Sing. It was a film about a a, um, a school in Brooklyn that, in all of the high schools in Brooklyn. They, they had this um, yearly sort of song fest where all of the schools came together and sang. And like the one that was done in um, Sister Act 2, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it was that kind of a thing. And this particular school, it was called The Sing. Mm -hmm. And this particular school had decided they weren't going to have it anymore. And they ended up locking up the principal of the school so they could have it anyway. Mm -hmm. And I was... Um, cast, well not cast, but I was uh, up for mm. the role of the, the music teacher and uh, Patti LaBelle got that So part. have you not had many scripts put in your direction? Only that one. Really? You're a friend one. of Whoopi, aren't you? I mean, can't she... Well, I'm not her? really a friend. I'm, I just recently met her. Yeah, yeah. And she's really, really, yeah. really nice, really yeah. pleasant. Yeah. And uh, Ali McBeal, of course, you've been in that. That was great. I enjoyed that. That was a lot of fun. And, you know, the other couple of um, shows that I did where I got to do tiny little bit of acting, like um, That 70s Show and um, The Wayans Brothers Show, I really, really enjoyed that. And, and I'd love to do that. And I've been told that I'm an actress. Oh, sure. Uh, um, Tell us about Callista. She's not as skinny as she looks. Um, and she's really not frail. 
She's not frail. She's just tiny. She didn't worry about her. No, I didn't worry about her at all. She's just really, really tiny. She works mm. out. Mm. The only only that she... <laughs> well, while we were doing that thing, did you see that? I didn't. Please remind me. Is well, that... I was. she was having her hallucinations, and, uh, right. and I was... She imagined that I was chasing her, singing. I was first in her bedroom when she woke up in the morning in her living room as she went out the door and uh, following her running down the street behind her and on the elevator when she got to work and all that and then finally at the end of the show in the club that they all go to and I was really there and she said that really is Gloria Gaynor up there isn't it and um, while we were shooting the part we were running down the street and we had and they stopped us and said they had some technical difficulty and she and I were sitting there, um, sitting there chatting, and she said to me, you know, you're, you're, you're out of your mind. I said, I'm out of my mind. These are your hallucinations. It was just a nice little chat. Did she tell talk. you that she was a fan of yours? Was, was she herself? Oh, they all were. Were they? Yeah, mm. they, they all said they were. Mm. Yeah. Did you all have a sing-song of I Will Survive or something? No, they didn't. We didn't, but they each one kind of walked around behind me while I was sitting and having lunch and whatever, giving me their rendition of I Will Survive. You've worked with many great artists over the years. Have any of the men made you go weak at the knees? Any sort of make made you make your heart jump a bit? Sean Connery. Really? Yeah. Tell us about that. Just, I've never seen him in person, but I just think he's such a hunk. Is he? Oh yeah. You ever I tried just to never, meet him? never. No, I haven't tried. I've never been around. What about any of the people you have met? That... I was quite affected at one time by Denzel Washington. Oh. But, you know, fantasies, they say that fantasies should be kept fantasies. Mm. I think that's quite right. Because when I met him, he's very good-looking and very sweet, very personable, quite the gentleman. Mm. But it just didn't happen. I just didn't really? feel that way. It's just an actor who who I admired. And well, he watched the video and thought, oh, I really like him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Go on, tell us. The, the film, I was just like, Which alrighty film? then. Every film. <laughs> you watched the Well, all. the first one, the first one that rape made me feel like that. I don't remember the name of it, but he was in a, uh, I think, a navy white outfit, oh, right outfit, mean, yeah. and he walked. Mm. <gasps> the walk, I thought, he has replaced Yul Brenner because you remember Yul Brenner had this walk that made him look like he owned the world, mm. and now Denzel has that walk, mm. you know. And I thought, oh my God, I, oh, I want to be him. And then I met him, and 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 where, I where, introduced where? myself to. Well, I got a phone call from uh, Lionel Richie oh. that he wanted me to come out and participate in a show, a '70s show that was being put on to raise funds for the school that his child, all of their children, oh. go to. His his child and um, and Denzel's children and um, Magic Johnson. I met the three of them. At the same time, at well, on the same evening, so I went out to do that, do that show, and I met uh, Lionel and Magic came to my dressing room, and I met them there, and we took pictures and everything, and then after my performance, I went to sit in the audience so that I could see the other artists perform, and across the way was Denzel mm. sitting at a table, and I just went over and said, Mr. Washington, I cannot go back home without a picture of you and, and, and myself together, and he Did said, you know who you are? Well, I said Gloria Gaynor. I don't know if he knew who I was. Right. And I said, Gloria Gaynor, I'm, I'm Gloria Gaynor, and I can't go back without a picture. And he said, you certainly cannot. And he stood up and oh. kissed me on the cheek, and they took pictures of us, and I just went back to my table. Have you got the picture yeah. on your bedside table? No, I've got it in my celebrity 
our photo album. So which celebrities are you friends with, genuine friends with? Thelma Houston, Candy State, also um, Frida Payne. Oh, yes, yeah. the band of gold. Yeah, yeah, right. Fantastic. Did you not do a big sort of concert or whole load of celebrities together quite recently? Yes, we did. As a matter of fact, we've done Jesus several, several, yeah. several recently. We did one in Atlantic City. We did one out in L.A. The uh, called the uh, Disco Ball, and that was on very recently. And then we did one oh in Pittsburgh um, for PBS. Over here, a lot of the artists, when they get to a certain age, they're just pushed to one side, and people say we don't want you anymore. We can't get recording contracts and so on. Do you find the same prejudice in the U.S.? Oh yeah. And, and is, that, is that very frustrating? Because it is very frustrating. You know, you're even more developed as an artist. Aren't yeah, you? it you is very frustrating, and I think it's not well thought out process because although young people are the largest buying record buying public, I think it's because nobody makes music that the the um, more mature audiences wants. I think if if I kept on recording. Music that and and Aretha Franklin, Gladys Knight, uh, you know, all of these artists um, continued recording. That the people who've always bought us would continue buying us, and mm. these are the people that don't have to go to the record shop and go eeny meeny miny mo. Mm. They can buy all ten records if they want them because they've got the funds. Whereas the kid has to wait till his mother gives him the money and you know his allowance and whatever. And so I I just think it's like really a, a sort of overlooked pot of gold. How happy are you with the way your career has been going in recent years? Well, I haven't been all that happy because although I've recorded some eight albums over the last 15 years in Europe, I would much rather have been able to keep up my one album a year mm -hmm. thing that I was doing uh, in the United States. And I would love to have been able to do it in the United States and have all of those albums and eight more besides the internationally released albums mm. but there were two reasons for that number one as you said I was getting older and not getting um, the offers and, and number two the offers that I, that I was getting was were from record companies that wanted to go into that techno thing and it just wasn't me I wasn't gonna pull that off I didn't even want to pull that off it just mm. wasn't my kind of music it wasn't music that would be accepted I didn't think from the young people by me so I came, you know, to Europe and began. I first, in fact, first came here and recorded the first album here at Red Bus Studios, and then I went on to record in um, Germany and France and uh, Italy. Of all your markets, though, is this one the one where you feel is strongest, where you have the most affection for you? Uh, this one in the United States. Mm. Yeah. You, you were talking about how Clive Davis gave you your first recording. Is, yeah. Has anything ever matched that excitement for you? Was that like a real big yes day for you? Oh, that was that was great for me. But there there have been several mm. things like like being elected Queen of Discos and mm. having that all whole inauguration thing with, and having two wonderful things happen at once: selling out the London Palladium for six nights in a row including mm. the royal box and on opening night having someone come in and ask me where was I will survive on the charts me saying number two and they saying no number one then recently last year um, receiving the legend award mm -hmm. from Prince Albert at the uh, World Music Awards mm -hmm. that was great and what's it like mixing with royalty is it kind of do you sometimes sit there in the west and think what am I doing here I'm the girl from New Jersey you know no, I don't think I ever felt like that. Mm. The only time I feel like that is when fans come in and they are just so
so elated to be in my presence. Mm. And I'm thinking, why? Mm. I'm, a, I'm an individual who, who, who God has given a talent. But he's given you a talent as well. Mm. And, and because my talent is widely appreciated and celebrated, doesn't make me special. It just makes... I, I don't get it. Mm. What's get the it. freakiest moment with the fan that's ever happened to you? This moment with the fan was Tom Moulton is a very well-known mixologist from the 70s, mm -hmm. um, you know, mixing mm -hmm. disco music. Mm -hmm. And I was, he was at my manager's office talking with my manager, and I walked into the room, and he got down on the floor and was like... We're not worthy. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's like pretending. He didn't actually do it, thank God. But pretending he was kissing my feet I'm like oh please get up what are you doing like and I mean really way back then with my first first real major hit I was like oh no that was really weird only other strange weird thing I've ever had was when I was in I was in Brazil and I was singing I was on stage singing a ballad and just honestly for a fleeting second in the middle of this expressing this song I closed my eyes just for a fleeting second and within that second somebody had me in a bear hug and a lip lock <laughs> like I don't know where he came from and my brother-in-law who was at the time my tour manager and sort of bodyguard came flying across the stage snatched this guy away from me and flung him into the audience and as he was flying through the air I can still see pictures of him blowing kisses at me <laughs> And you met President Clinton, of course. Yeah. And yeah. Was he still in office at the time? Yes, he was. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, I met him on the day that Monica Lewinsky was doing her expose on television. Oh, right. So I gave him a survival kit. Did you? What does that mean? Yeah. It was a, it was a basket mm -hmm. that we had made up, and it had in it, because um, I know he likes golf, and it had a golf cap that said I will survive and some chocolate golf balls that said I will survive and uh, some lifesavers chocolate lifesavers and we had a caricature done of him and his dog because I knew he was very fond of his dog and um, this is what you give to the fans sometimes like a little kit you no, I've never given that to anybody. Oh, it was just a one-off. Yeah, okay. yeah. Did you explain why you were giving it to him or anything? Yeah? No, I didn't. I didn't, and I didn't even say that it was a survival mm. kit. Um, and maybe because I didn't um, explain, maybe that's why I never heard a thank you or anything. From <laughs> I mean, he said thank you mm. when I gave it to him, mm. but he had no idea what I was giving it. But I really was a little bit disappointed because I thought I'd get a thank you because of the character. Because mm. that was kind of special, I thought. Mm. Being a, a Christian, you know, a God-loving person, did you disapprove of his antics? Yeah, yeah, I did. I just, I just did. You know, I mean, everybody knows what went on there, and you know, and I'm, I, sh I shouldn't say everybody knows what went on there because nobody knows what went on there. But of what was told, mm. if it's true, I most certainly disapprove because first of all, I disapprove of infidelity. Mm. I felt more bad for him that he didn't have the sort of insight to just admit it and have it mm. done with. Because my mm. feeling was, given the the, the American public. Because we're quite forgiving. Mm. And I felt that if he admitted it at first and said, you know, I, I, I did a terrible thing. Mm. I don't know what I, I, it was a horrible thing for me to do. Hillary and I had a terrible row that day and, you know, I just fell mm. into 
stupidness and I'm really sorry I did it and everybody would have went oh and that would have been the end of it have you ever fancied a career in politics yourself no have you suggested Ooh. it no uh uh no it's definitely not for me how difficult is it to get older in this business, which is sort of so youth-orientated, the music industry? It's quite difficult. It's quite difficult. Um, being young at heart makes it easier. Never forgetting when you were young makes it easier. Surrounding yourself with a lot of young people makes it easier. And looking younger than you are mm. certainly makes it a lot easier. Mm. And how satisfied are you with what you've achieved so far? I'm pretty satisfied because I really feel that I've done the best I could with what I had to work with. And by that I mean the record companies, the music, uh, the, the songs that were offered to me, the productions that I've been given. I think I've done my part. Oh, I think I've probably given more credit than I deserve. The Legend Award? I kind of felt like, I, I often say, I kind of felt like uh, Robert De Niro. You, you talking to me? <laughs> <laughs> What do you want to achieve for the rest of your life, your career? I want to, one thing, do a gospel album, a complete gospel album, because I've done um, some gospel songs on a number of, of uh, albums that I've done, but I want to do a complete gospel album. I want to do a multimedia concert tour that um, will be a real experience. I really, really want to do that. And I want to finally go into... A ministry, and I call it a ministry not because I'll be working in the pulpit, but because with using the love, knowledge, and power of Christ, I intend to help people to learn how to affect peaceful, harmonious, equitable relationships in every area of their lives. How do you want to be remembered after you're gone? As one who accomplished that helping people to, 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 to learn how to have those kinds of relationships because I don't think there's anything more important. I don't think life is about anything except relationships. Does it bother you that no matter what you achieve for the rest of your days, everyone's always going to associate you with that song? No, because that's kind of part of it. Because it starts with, you can't have a relationship, good relationship with anyone else until you first have a good relationship with yourself. Yeah. So if you've learned and learned how to survive then you're beginning to have a good relationship with yourself and that's the beginning of having good relationships with other people. Has it been suggested that on your tombstone it should say, well, I almost survived? Or, <laughs> <laughs> have you thought what you like? Well, I've told my friend that I save my boarding passes from my, from my flight, airline flights and that when I die she's going to have to collect them all and add up all the mileage and have it put on my tombstone. Really? Mm -hmm. She travels every mile. <laughs> what about the survival words? Though? You didn't care about oh, them. no, I survived. Definitely. Those mm -hmm. words will definitely go very, very well on my tombstone because I have no doubt that I'm going to heaven and there is no other survival. Mm -hmm.